2 Samuel 5.1, it says that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us into Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, or Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. I'm going to skip down to verse number 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Those are not stunning, awe-striking verses, but they're so important. Every time I look at the life of David and we get into some of these chapters that reveal a specific component of his life, I want to grow. I've not learned uh, other than any other character, uh, more from any other character in the Old Testament. I've not learned anything more about life than I have from the life of King David. And tonight, I'm going to tell you, you can, you can gain something. It may not be what you came in looking uh, to gain, but it's something you're going to need for the rest of your days. What am I talking about? Um, just a little patience. I'm talking about reaping the harvest, the harvest that comes from a season of patience. I mentioned earlier that I'm a little bit of an old rock and roll guy and cut my teeth in the 70s rock and roll and 80s rock and roll and a little bit in the 90s. And all day long, I've had guns and roses in my head. Just a little patience, yeah, yeah. Now, five people in the room are like, Never do that again, Jeff. <laughs> My wife is here. I wouldn't have done it. But I, I, I think of this thing called patience. Is there anybody in the room that's awesome at being patient? There may be. Is there anybody that's really good at being patient? If you are, you got that way through development. Um, most of us are not naturally patient. Almost all of us are inclined to want what we desire as soon as we recognize that we desire it. And we just, and it comes out in a lot of different ways. And the reality is, is as Jesus is growing us and shaping us and maturing us, one of the components of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Patience with outward circumstances, patience with ourselves, patience with other people, patience with Gwinnett County traffic, patience with anything that provokes us to selfishness or hastiness. And David is probably the guy that I look to the most in the Old Testament to teach me how to harvest from my waiting season. Some of you are in a waiting season. You're not imagining things. God is actually refusing to do things on your timetable. And it is, it is not only according to his wisdom, because he actually knows what he's doing and why he's doing it, but part of the purpose is, is he wants to train us to never lean on our own understanding. And we do. And so the only way we learn not to do that is by God not giving us immediately what we want and what we think we need. Sometimes he says, no, I actually have a better plan. And if you really trust me, I'm going to lead you in that thing. And when we start out, we're like, yes, yes, lead me, Jesus. And, and, and a month later, we're like, I thought, I thought you were leading me. And six months later, you're like, where did you go? And nine months later, if you're walking in the flesh, you're actually mad at God. I've seen this process. I've seen the potential for it in my life. And so I want to talk to you about what it means to wait on him and what kind of harvest we can expect. Because I, I, I just want to give you this. You already know it, but I like to give you the big point at the beginning so you can find it the whole way through the message. Um, what other option is there than to wait on what God wants? 
What other, what other viable option? What other, what other profitable option is there? Because we already know at this point that it is a terrible thing to fight against the plan of the Lord, to ignore the counsel of the Lord, or to try to circumvent the timing of the Lord. We already know that, and yet is it not true that in our heart we still have to pull back from our tendency to try to get ahead of God? So let's, let's look at it in David's life. Here's, here's a small component of it that maybe, maybe a few in the room need to hear, and I'm going to talk to you about waiting on God to establish our names. Now this may sound a little mm, arrogant, but I, I want to I say something. I think I can put it in, in a Bible context. Your name is who you are, and it's also why you are. And there's usually not a healthy thinking person uh, in, in the room that doesn't long to know more deeply, who am I in you, God? Who am I in Jesus? And why am I here? What reason is there for me in this season of my life? Lord, when will you establish these things? And so look at what worked with David. In, in verse number one, we see this commitment to unity under David in Israel, it says all the tribes of Israel came to David. I'm just going to call it Hebron. It's pronounced properly Hebron, but at, at Hebron and said, they said to David, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now understand this. For seven and a half years, these are the people that had refused to acknowledge David as their king. Uh, Judah had acknowledged David as their king, but the rest of the tribes had said, no, we don't want David as our king. And David, for all of these years prior, for a decade prior, for between his anointing and, um, and, and taking the reins of Hebron, David had been waiting on the will of God to manifest in his life. And the will of God was that David would be king over all Israel. So he gets that anointing as a teenager. And if he's anything like most of us, we get the calling, we get the anointing. And 10 minutes later, we're like, Where's, why isn't it happening? But David had to wait and wait and wait through all of these hardships. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. Then Saul dies, and David is probably thinking, after he lamented and mourned for Saul, he's probably thinking, now I can be king. Now I can step into my destiny. But he doesn't. He's king over one tribe. Not for a month, not for six months of waiting, not for a year or five years, but almost a decade, seven and a half years, David is waiting, and now this is the moment where all of the other tribes of Israel, they come to him. Notice, he didn't go to them and demand his rights. He didn't say, why isn't somebody making my calling happen? How come y'all are getting in the way of my calling? How come you guys aren't coming for me? I've got an anointing. I've got a calling. This is God's will. David never said a word. He waited on the Lord until finally God took care of some things horizontally, and those people came to him, and they made this commitment to David. They said, uh, well, look at what they said. They said in verse number two, in times past when Saul was the king over us, it was you, David. It was you who led us out and, or led us out and brought in Israel. So here we see some things happening. We see, first of all, tribalism is dying under David. There's unity. All of the tribes are now coming together. When you've got the right leader, by the way, there, there won't be prolonged division. And David was a unifying leader. And so when they came, they wanted to recognize some things. They said, David, we've known all along, even when Saul was the king over us, we recognized, David, it was you who were leading us. If you've never been misunderstood for a long season, I don't have to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have had people that got you completely wrong and treated you as such? And nothing you could say and nothing you could do could ever convince them. It is an awesome thing. It doesn't happen all the time. It may not even happen often, but it's an awesome thing when they finally have their light bulb moment and they recognize, I was completely wrong about her. I was completely wrong about him. And all of a sudden, there, there's this correction in their perception of you. And you didn't defend yourself. You didn't fight for it. You didn't, you, you didn't have to, you know, write a blog about this person or send them a nasty note or anything like that. But God shifted their hearts. And that's what happened for David. They said, David, we've, we've really known all along that it, you, you were the God-appointed leader of Israel. And they get this, David gets to hear this affirming clarity uh, coming from other people. Now, I get this. Let me just be, I'm, I'm going to weave some counseling into this. It, it really is sufficient for you to know who you are in Christ. It's good to have a good 
understanding, a healthy, gospel-centered understanding of your identity in Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, most of us still have a component in us that wants people to get us. They want to, we want to be understood. We even want to be appreciated and at times validated, not because we desire glory, but it just feels right. It's just and righteous when we're living as we should before the Lord. We want other people to get that. I've heard, I've heard some frustrated Christians say, well, bless God, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. And that's supposed to sound spiritual, but I'm, I'm going I'm to challenge you on that. You should care what people think about you because you're a reflection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So your testimony, what people think about you, should be important. You should care what people think about you, but you should never be controlled by what people think about you. And there's a fine line between that. David cared about what people thought, but he was never controlled by it. And so it was an awesome thing to hear the people that had ignored him and neglected him and opposed him finally say to him, it, it was you all along, David. You were the real leader. And so at the end of verse number two, they, they actually spoke his destiny back to him. They said at the end of verse number two, they said, we know that the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people and you shall be the prince over Israel. I, I know we have a hard time connecting with this, but this now is about 20 years from David's anointing. 20 years. Somewhere in that time frame, it's about 20 years, maybe 17 years, somewhere in there. But that's a long time between you getting your prophetic destiny spoken to you from God through a prophet and then actualizing that prophetic destiny. That's a long wait. It's a long time to wait for God's plan to fulfill and unfold in your life. And I, I'm just going to risk it. I dare say, I don't know that I would have made it 20 years. And I don't know where you are with the Lord. Some of you may be saying, Jeff, I'm actually somewhere in that 20-year span. I've been waiting. I know I've got a calling. I know I've got a purpose. I know I've got this prophetic destiny, this anointing, but, but my life has not opened up the door for it, and, 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 and I don't know if I can wait any longer. Well, that's why you're here tonight. Because David's going to train us how to wait. And what's amazing here is earlier they had said in verse 2, they had affirmed what David had done, but this is more affirming about who David is. They say, you're the shepherd. God called you to be the shepherd. It's an awesome moment. And some of you need to learn to receive this. When somebody speaks what they see God doing in your life, if it is consistent with the Bible... If it is affirming and edifying, if it's coming from a source that you know is, to the best of your knowledge, is a reliable source, a person that walks with the Lord, then just receive the affirmation. It's not going to make you a glory hog. You're not going to get conceited and swollen up with pride. God has a way of taking the stick pen of reality and popping the balloon of our pride. The Lord will not allow the people that are consecrated unto him to get puffed up. But listen, some of you need to go ahead and just receive it. If somebody comes up to you and speaks blessing and affirmation over what they see in your life don't do with that religious false piety and just say no 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 just say well glory hallelujah thank you and then when you get turned from that conversation you just look up the lord and you just say you and i both know that that's you and me but thank you for letting them affirm that and david got that affirmation of his destiny but go along a little bit further because this is where we start seeing it this is where i think the lord can meet some of you where you are tonight um, we hope for God, hope in God for promised breakthrough. Say this, I need breakthrough. Would you say that? I need breakthrough. All of us need it. We may not be fully convinced that we need it. I'm going to tell you, the guy preaching right now, I need breakthrough. I, I could give you, if I had time, at least a dozen areas in my life where I need significant breakthrough. I need a fresh touch. I need new wine. I need um, a, 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 a newly opened vial of oil from God poured out on some areas in my heart and my life. And so breakthrough, I believe, is, is embedded in the gospel. When I think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I recognize that the gospel contains a dying and a resurrecting. 
The dying speaks of our consecration. It speaks of our, our dying to lesser loyalties and our, our dying to the pursuits of things that can never enrich the plans of God to our lives. We have to die to self. We have to die to the world. We have to die to the, the, the sinful nature that is all about us. And, and, and in that dying, except a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, Jesus said, it brings forth much fruit. And so that's the breakthrough. And yet there's something within us is that we so fiercely resist the dying component of the gospel. We want to live and live and live and live and live, but the, the, uh, the reality, the formula, if you will, of the gospel is that greater life, greater breakthrough comes from deeper deaths. And so there's some things that we have to die to. And so David has spent basically 20 years dying to everything and getting very little breakthrough. He was feeding his family, he was taking care of his responsibilities, he was winning some battles, but he wasn't walking in the fullness of his destiny, and he wasn't doing anything wrong, so to speak. So what does this breakthrough look like? Well, part of it is this, and this will encourage some of you. In verse number three, I want you to remember something. God will handle all your human opposition. You're not allowed to. What does it look like? Verse three, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Stop. This is the moment. He was a teenager when he got the word. He was a teenager when he got the anointing. And here we are right now. And it is um, David coming into the, the fullness of his calling, the fullness of his destiny. And he'd been waiting decades for this day. And it had come after seven and a half years in Hebron of rejection and opposition every single day by the very same men who were now coming to him in humility and saying, we want you to be our king. Um, there's something awesome about waiting on the Lord to take care of your human opposition there's something really nasty that takes place when we try to take care of our human opposition. I've never come away feeling good in the Lord when I've handled my own human opposition. And some of you are wired like me. I'm wired for a fight. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm short and I just had to learn how to fight as a, as a kid, that little Napoleon syndrome, all the little short guys always had to, to, to fight, but I, I was just born that way. And I don't fight in the flesh anymore, but um, I'm, I'm not too proud to say that I, I love a good tangle in the spirit, man. If go against the devil, got to go against the devil. You want to go against a carnal person who's serving the devil? I, I used to get up for that kind of stuff. But I, I've never come away from fighting flesh with my flesh and felt holy and felt like I pleased the Lord. I, I won a lot of fights, but I lost a lot of ground by winning those fights. And some of us that are in the room, you've got human opposition. It could be somebody in your family. It could be a, an ex. It could be a boss. It could be anybody. And David... For seven and a half years, the scriptural record never shows one time where David tried to force the elders of the other tribes to come and acknowledge him as king. He never tried to declare that his destiny was greater than their destiny. He never tried to defend his reputation. He never tried to advance his territory. He knew that they were against him, and he also knew he had the calling of God on his life. He was literally standing with God. They're standing against God, but David kept himself humble and waited on the Lord for seven and a half years. And I'm glad he did because this day in verse number three uh, sealed the deal for him in his mind. Look in verse number four. He was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. So David was 30 years old. He was 30 when he finally ascended the full throne. Uh, well, excuse me, he ascended the throne of, of, uh, in Hebron over Judah at age 30, but he was almost 40 when he ascended the full throne. So you got to think, by the time we're here, David is somewhere around 37, 38 years old. And he was probably anointed at 17, 16 maybe, 15 possibly. So over two decades, he had waited two decades for one day. 
for one moment. Guys, let's get real, okay? Jesus followers, any Jesus followers in the room? Let, let's get real. Um, we, we don't do that. Not with the same spirit, not with the same endurance, not with the same confidence in God. And when I say we, it's the collective we. You might be the exception of the rule. But very few of us can wait a year or five years. Five years? Jeff, you, you mean I've got to wait five years? Jeff, you must not know. I've got an anointing. I've got, I've got a prophetic word of destiny over me, my ministry, and my calling. What do you mean five years? I'm sorry, I'm I'm not in charge of the sovereign clock of heaven, but it, it may not only be five years, it might be 10, it might be 15. David had to go 20 for one day. Um, at some point in your Christian journey, you've got to come to terms with the fact of God being in charge of the calendar and the clock. And a calendar and a clock, they make awesome servants, but they make terrible masters. And if we are mastered by our sense of needing what we need, wanting what we want, in the timing that we choose, we'll inevitably end up getting in opposition to the timetable of God. And listen, the deeper the calling, the more costly the anointing, the greater likelihood we should have of the longer the wait will be. God does not do microwaves. He's a crockpot king, amen? He lets us just kind of simmer, soak, and stew. And it's not because he's indifferent. It's not because he's cruel. But I'm going to tell you, I don't know why. I guess if you're eternal, you're never in a hurry. And, and we are called to merge our hearts and minds with this. Think about it. Think of how old Abraham was before he was released into his destiny. Think about how old Moses was before he got to do the greatest work that he ever got to do, which was to deliver the children of Israel. And lest we ignore it, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, was born fully God in the womb of Mary and waited 30 years with absolutely no record, no biblical record of ever being released in the fullness of his earthly destiny until he was 30 years old. You know, David waited 20, Jesus waited 30. And yet there's something within us that gets so antsy, and I'm not being critical here, I'm just helping us to acknowledge where we sometimes can get. Some of you walked into the room and you feel like you're behind. You feel like you're tardy, that you're late. And I just want to ask you, could it be that the Lord is actually pleased with you where you are, even though inwardly you're restless? God's plans for you are not dependent on things happening with haste. He's so much more committed to the quality of our lives than he is the, the quantity of us cramming in as much as we can before the clock ticks its last. And so God's going to teach you his time. And it says, verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. And so look down in verse number, number 5. And here's, here's where I struggle. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you, but I'm also going to confess my sins to you. Verse number 5. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So let me just tell you where some of us get. And if you're younger in the room, and I'll let you decide if you're younger or not, but if you, if you feel yourself younger in the room, you might struggle with this more. So in, when, he, when he is anointed, he had three anointings. It took three separate anointings for David to finally stand there on that day, and we'll find out in a minute, on one single day, he finally perceived that the Lord had established him as king. But it took three separate anointings. The first anointing by Samuel, the second anointing happened in, Ju in Judah. The tribes of Judah anointed him as their king. And so if I'm David and I get that second anointing, I'm like, glory, thank you, Father. Now is the time. Judah is here and the other tribes will be coming soon. You have anointed me. Now, it's not just Samuel, it's all of these men. They've anointed me as their king. And it didn't happen. 
And a year goes by and it still hasn't happened. And two years goes by and it still hasn't happened. And five years goes by and he's gotten a fresh anointing. So I'm thinking I'm this close to my destiny. I get to do what God has called me to do. It's for the glory of the Lord. All my motives might be pure and all of my, 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 my desires might be holy and Godward. And, and, and I'm doing everything I can do. And after all of these years of waiting and running from Saul, now he's gone and I'm being anointed. And I just assume that the fullness of his destiny is going to find me. And what does the Lord do? If I'm David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to get you there incrementally. We want sudden, complete, full breakthrough. And sometimes God says two words that none of us want to hear. Not yet. Not yet. It's an intense test of our commitment and our character when God says no. And not yet feels like no, right? Am I talking to the most patient group of Christians anywhere on planet Earth? Y'all are all looking at me like, we don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. Well, let me just preach to myself then. Um, it, it, it says that in Judah, he reigned. So he was being the person he was supposed to be, but the context God had provided was much smaller than what David was called to. Some of you hear me on this. Some of you have been called to be entrepreneurs and businesswomen and businessmen, and that business is not booming, not yet. And God may be saying, I'm working something inside of you that prepares you for what I've got coming to you, but I can't give it to you all at once. Now, that's not a rebuke. That's not an indictment. That's just God being wise. Um, for every, I forget who it was that said this. It, may, it sounds like a C.S. Lewis quote. But it, it, the, the statement is this. For every man that can withstand adversity, excuse me, that it can stand, withstand prosperity, for every man that can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that can withstand adversity. What does that mean? That prosperity sometimes, premature prosperity, ruins more people than prolonged adversity. We, we want prosperity, we want breakthrough, we want what we want and we want it now and what we fail to recognize is that the recorded history of human beings is that when a person succeeds before they're ready, it's actually bad for them. And especially if that person's a follower of Jesus because what happens is we get all of the success and with all of the success comes a lot of temptations and trappings that tend to move us away from the Lord instead of moving us in closer. And so what does God do? He will perfect us through adversity. Some of you are in a smaller context of life right now outwardly, not because God's mad at you, but because it's a sign of his favor and his love to you because he doesn't want to put you in something that will swallow you right now. And so he, he's giving you incremental breakthrough, and it's also there where we often learn what we're, what we're made of. And so for David, there was a seven-and-a-half-year time out in Judah before the fullness of the kingdom came. I, I will just ask you this before moving on to the last point. Are you okay with God advancing you if he chooses to do it incrementally? Can you praise him? Can you still declare his goodness? Is he still holy and wise when he is intentionally pumping the brakes on your life? Those are the kind of things that David had to wrestle through. It's the kind of things that we have to wrestle through. Um, I forget when it was, and I've, I think I've shared this before, hopefully not recently. Um, I it may have been at Stone Mountain, and it may have been somewhere in Tennessee, I can't remember, but I remember going and visiting a potter, a person that does pottery, and just kind of mesmerized by the fashioning of it and the skill and the hands and the water and the spinning and making, taking a lump of nasty clay and turning it into something beautiful. And all along the shop were, were finished products that had been glazed and fired. I'm always mesmerized. Uh, I have a good friend, Roy Giese, who pastors up in Greenville, and he is... Um, he, he does it under a surname, but he's actually known internationally for being one of the foremost potters uh, that are around. Travels overseas by invitation under a pseudonym, and he's just this pastor from Greenville. And I'm, I'm mesmerized by it, but I remember watching this potter, and he would do this, and then I, I looked up on the, on the shelf 
And there were all of these pots that had, had seemingly been just set aside. They weren't glazed, and they, they, you could tell they were incomplete. And they're surrounded by all these other ones that are beautiful. I'm thinking, well, what's up with these? So I asked him, I said, what's, what's, what's going on with these that are up on the shelf? And he goes, oh, I always put a vessel that I've made up on the shelf first. And I was like, you put them up on the shelf, how come you don't glaze them and fire them and all that? He goes, no, it's really important for me as the potter, I want to put these these vessels up on the shelf, I want to make sure they can hold their shape. And immediately I thought, oh my goodness, that's me. That's what the Lord does with me sometimes. He puts his hand on me, he molds me, he makes me, he fits me for a purpose, and instead of thrusting me into that purpose with all of the glaze and all of the shine and all of the beauty and all of the color and all of the purposefulness that I can hold something or pour something or contain something or transport something, he just says, how about you go up on the shelf for a little bit and let me make sure you can hold the design that I originally intended for you. And guys, that's what he's doing for some of you, but it's not because he's mad. It's not because you're missing it. It's not because you have done something to invoke the the displeasure of God. Sometimes the longest wait on the shelf is an indicator that what comes after that wait is going to be immensely important to the one who put you on that shelf in the first place. And so that's where faith has to come in. That's where hope has to come in. That's where we have to, have to trust the hand of the potter. And I dare say, if you feel like God's put you on the shelf when you know you have a purpose and you know you've had his hand on you before and you anticipate and you're looking at all the other people with their shine and their color and their vessel and their purpose and the price tag hanging on them and they have value and you're sitting there, I'm just a clay pot on the shelf. Listen, he's not taking his eye off of you. He's not forgotten why he made you. He's not, he's not moved on to something bigger, prettier, shinier, more valuable. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows the exact moment when he's going to retrieve you off the shelf, and he's going to finish what he began. He who began the good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this last point, last few verses, I'm not promising, but we may get out early tonight. You can leave whenever you want, but I want to get these last points in. In this waiting, we we learn to do something. We learn to treasure the presence of God. I know that sounds like really Christian, but it's actually really important. Treasuring the presence of God. David, we might say, has been waiting on God. But I think that phrase is more more accurately said, we're not waiting on God, we're waiting with God. Because waiting on God makes it sound like he's out there doing something apart from us, without us. We're over here, we got nothing going on. We're waiting on God to make something happen. And I think even if we can change our vocabulary and stop saying, I'm just waiting on God, or why isn't God doing No, 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 we're actually waiting with him. Why? Because he is committed to keeping his presence centrally available to all of us. Um, He never leaves us, he never forsakes us, but sometimes it sounds maybe a little silly, but we we lose track of his presence because we're distracted. And David didn't get distracted. David wasn't perfect. We all know about David's sins and failures and momentary implosions, but what's crazy is that he never really lost the presence of God. And so what does this look like? Look in verse number 10, because we start seeing now all of the kingdoms united under him, and David begins to experience the favor of God, because in God's presence is his favor. His presence is his favor. Verse number 10, look at what the Bible says. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, let your Bible say what it says. The Bible is offering us a human evaluation that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. There was some measure of David's life that's not specified here that when people look at the season in David's life, they're saying God is increasing him. God is making David greater. We can use words like this, favor, elevation, anointing. We can can view it in terms of closed doors now open. We can look at it as that season of harvest. Hear me on this. Everybody wants the harvest. I do. You do. But let's just be realistic. 
you don't harvest in the same season that you plant. They're different seasons. And if you quit in the planting season or you get negligent in the watering season, you don't experience the harvest season. And now David's been waiting and waiting and waiting a long way, and now here comes the harvest. And the Lord, it's almost like the Lord says, I have watched you wait. I have heard your praise. I have seen and, and witnessed your humbling and your contrition when you have failed. I have seen you, David, never took my eye off of you. I saw you when you were high and confident. I saw you when you were broken and repentant and lowly. David, I saw all of your mistakes. And David, I saw all of your aspirations. David, I never took my eye off of you. And David, here's what I know. You never let your heart leave me. And in your patience, Jesus would say this, in your patience, possess ye your souls. And so David comes to this place that in his patience, he preserved his life. And God says, I'm now going to make you greater. I don't know how you feel about that, but I want you to think through it. If God wants to make your life greater, are you willing for him to make your life greater? Because there's, there's a, a thread of false Christianity that says, no, 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 no. I, I don't, I don't want to be made greater. No, you didn't hear the question. If God wants to make you greater, do you want to be greater? Well, I don't, I don't, that's, that just seems a little you know, arrogant or presumptuous. No, 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 you're not listening. If God wants to make you greater in whatever capacity he determines, are you okay with that? Because that's actually an element of your surrender and submission. And I want to tell you, you may not feeling, be feeling that this is your season of greater, but can it be your season of faithfulness while you're on the shelf? Can it be your season of praise? Can it be your season of knowing the Lord is with me? And if you will abide in the confidence of his goodness, even if life is not necessarily revealing that to you, can you not misdefine God because life is troubling? Can you not give in to that temptation that says, well, God must be upset or God's angry or God's not come through for me? Can you do away with that rottenness in your bones and just say, okay, my season of waiting is going to eventuate into a season of greater. And I'm just one of those guys that, again, I believe in the overcoming nature of the gospel. I believe in breakthrough. And I, I believe in a God that is so wise that he knows the perfect time for the waiting to come to an end, to go from being the waiter to the greater. That just came to me. That's fun. The waiter to the greater. And what was the reason? Because the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's all it was. That God's favor was on David. And what did that favor look like? The presence of the Lord. Some of you may never be wealthy. Some of us are never going to be on GQ or the cover of Cosmo or whatever the new magazine is for women, Vogue or whatever. What is the new magazine for women? Does anybody know? Yeah, whatever she said. So whatever that is, we may never be cover men or cover women. We never be, may hit the pinnacle of beauty by 21st century Western standards. So what? You might not live in Chateau Alain. You may not drive the, the brand new, you know, whatever people are wanting to drive these days. But the presence of the Lord is with you, my Christian friend. Not just with you, in you. So when you're sitting there right there tonight, the, the God of all creation lives in you. When you get, get up out of your seat and you go to your vehicle, the God of all creation rides home with you. When you are in the valley, he's there. When you are feeling it on the mountain, we, it's easy to feel him there. When you are the one, when you are that finished vessel being filled with treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the Holy Spirit, the treasure of purpose and power, and you have an outflow for all that he's put in you, he's there. But he's also there in you and with you when you're on the shelf. And David is, is the living example of what Paul said. Paul said this, in whatever state I am in, I've learned to be content. Paul said, I've learned how to be lowered and I've learned how to be elevated and in all things, I've just learned that contentment. And so David was experiencing God's favor and here's what's cool. And this is where I, I I'm just gonna declare this over some of you. I don't know who, but I, 
this isn't necessarily prophetic. It's just good odds that this is going to happen because we got enough people in the room. But some of you are going to experience, matter of fact, I actually gave this prophetic word during worship tonight to a young woman, that some of you are going to experience a season of fertilized favor with people soon. And you've been waiting and you've been trusting and you've been abiding and you've gone through that season where nobody was in your corner rooting you on and I'm just going to declare for some of you and you just need to, you, if God is, 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 is churning the faith in you to say, yes, I believe that, I receive that, then it's you. Verse 11, favor with man. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. Why did he do that? To build David a palace, to build David a house. Now, here's what you need to know. David was living in this fort called Milo, and it wasn't awesome. And David was not like all the other kings, but now all the kings are coming together, and David's moving everything to centralize in Jerusalem. So they, they kill the Jebusites. They get rid of the Jebusites. Jebus becomes this place that we all know, of course, as Jerusalem. And, and Hiram, the king of Tyre, says, wow, there's a new king in Israel. I don't know. I just I got all of these riches, and I just want to build that new king. I just want to build him a palace. You know, Israel was primarily f farmers and agricultural and, 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 and carpenters, I guess. And they, they weren't really palace builders. And so Hiram says, he takes out the corporate credit card and he says, send all of the lumber, send all of the stones, put them on ships, send it down there, and let's build that Hebrew king a palace. You know what I love about that? Is David wasn't so pious and religious and he, that he said, now y'all are Gentiles, man. I can't have y'all building no house for me. Y'all are y'all are not one of us. David's like, oh, I got the favor of the Lord on me. If the enemy wants to come and prosper me and bless me, I'm going to take it. Why? Because God was elevating him. Um, sometimes the Lord will send the devil to do his work, and Hiram, king of Tyre, was no friend to Yahweh. He was no friend to the Hebrew people, but for whatever reason, in this season, David starts getting incredible favor with God. That that presents itself it manifests in David receiving favor from other people I really feel that this was not in my notes I feel like that some of you are in the room are going to, your businesses are going to begin to have a touch of God on them God's going to give you customers that you never thought you would get that maybe you're not even qualified to get but you're going to start getting them and the season of waiting and crumbling and maybe not not experiencing that favor is going to to loose you and some of you are going to begin to experience that and so in verse number 12 and I'm almost done this is the verse I wanted to get to. And you're just going to have to let me just flow in a little bit of sanctified imagination here. In verse number 12, note two things. First of all, this God, his presence blesses us so that we can bless others uh, with our lives. You were blessed to be a blessing. Remember this with me. You've heard me say this before. You are not a bowl. You're a pipe. What does a bowl do? It holds everything it receives. What does a pipe do? Whatever pours in one end comes out the other end onto somebody else. You're a bowl, excuse me, you're a pipe. Did I say it wrong the first time too? You're a pipe, you're not a bowl. Um, my clay pot is showing through right now. I have no idea what I'm saying. What does it look like in David's life? David knew that the Lord had established him the king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is so good. Listen. It reads so simple, but I want you to, I just want you to think with me. So you're waiting 20 years for the promise of God to manifest from your life. That word that you got, that anointing that you got, that verse that cemented in your heart, you knew the Holy Spirit said, this is for you. That calling, whatever that thing is. And David, for him, it was to be king over all Israel. I was never in doubt. And so David had to fight for his life. He had to survive Saul. He buried his best friend, Jonathan. He lost his wife, Michael. He lost his reputation down in Gath where he had to pretend that he was an, a lunatic. Um, at one point, his, his small group of followers wanted to kill him because he made a tactical error that, that temporarily cost them. And so, and, and not to mention, every day of his life, for, for the better part of, of about 13 years at that point, he was hunted like a dog by a man whom he loved. And David's whole context was, 
I have an anointing. I have a calling. I know God's good. I don't know what's happening. Why is it not manifesting? I'm going backwards in my circumstances instead of going forward into my destiny. What is going on? But he just stayed centered and stayed in patience and waited on the Lord. And the Bible says here that on the day and in that time where where the king, the foreign king, decided to build him a palace, and all Israel had recognized him as king and pronounced their understanding that they saw God's touch on his life. This is the way I look at it. I look at David coming out one day, and he's standing somewhere watching these these people from Tyre working and building him a palace. And he's seeing over here a, a, a group from, from Benjamin and a group from, from the Levites and a group from Issachar and Simeon, all these tribes that used to, used to resist his leadership. And, and, and they're all moving now in his kingdom. And David's sitting there. I'm, I'm just picturing it in 21st century terms. He's got his cup of coffee and he's watching all this happen. And the Bible says it was in a moment like that where David perceived that he was king. It hit him. There was a moment in time where David looked around and he said, oh, to the glory of God, I'm in it. I'm in the middle of my destiny. I have stepped into the fullness of my purpose. God has delivered me from the waiting and he has now established me in my destiny. It happened We read the life of David like it's some fabled history and romanticized for the big screen. It's a guy pressing into his purpose in the Lord. And in one moment, it dawned on him that he was there. Can you picture that for your life? You might be 80 years old in the room and say, I've never really had that sensation. Well, friend, by virtue of the fact that you're breathing, you have a pulse and a brainwave, then I'm going to tell you, God's not done with you yet. You may still have this moment awaiting you, and I dare say if you haven't experienced it yet, this moment is still ahead of you. If you're young in this room, I just want to say, please be patient with the timing of the Lord. Picture by faith with your, your, your Holy Spirit-led, glorified imagination. Just picture for a moment in the future where you will know and you'll say, Oh, Lord, I'm glad I waited. I'm glad I endured the shelf. I'm glad I endured the hard season. I'm glad I endured all of the waiting and, and, and all of the opposition and all of the, the plateau. I'm glad because, Lord... I am now standing in the very thing that I longed for, that I felt that you had told me was going to come to pass. You've got, that's faith. It's the substance of things not seen. So let me give you these verses and we'll go home. Hebrews 10.36. I think these will be up on the screen. Just the writer of Hebrews said, you need to persevere so that after you have done the will of God, which sometimes is waiting, faithfully abiding and being patient, after you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The only instruction there is persevere. Just a little patience. Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Keep talking to God patiently endure the afflictions of life, the hassles, the provokings, the problems, the opposition. Patiently endure the affliction. I've already quoted this from Luke 21, 19. Jesus said this, by your patience, possess your souls. It's an incredible statement. Jesus says, you living in patience is like securing your life. It it simply, it it speaks of the reality that in patient trust and a refusal to panic, a refusal to make it happen on your own, a, a, a discipline not to force issues, not to say, well, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm gonna do it and God will clean up my mess. No. In your patience, own your life. Be the master in this sense, the master of your part of your life in a spirit of patience. James 5.8, 
you too, because this is not a message for the other girl, you too, be patient, strengthen your heart, because the Lord's coming is near. You don't want to be frantic. You don't want to be forcing the issues. You don't want to be hasty. Why? Listen, he's coming back. I don't want the Lord to find me toiling in fleshly anxiety when he returns. I, I don't want him, you know, splitting the skies. I'm like, yeah, yeah, in a minute, Lord, I've got stuff I've got to do for you. You know, that's ridiculous, I know, but man, some of us are living like that. Some of us are, are living so unoccupied with the reality that he's coming back. All this junk that we get so jacked up over, one nanosecond after he returns, we're not going to be thinking about any of that stuff. We're unoccupied with those thoughts and we're preoccupied with lesser things. And so James says, strengthen your heart. Be patient. And then the last thing, and I'll have you stand so you actually know when I'm done. Go ahead, stand up. Let us not, come on, y'all love this verse. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. This is a great opportunity for you and me to believe our Bibles. Don't become weary. That's in your control. Keep doing good. And at the proper time, not your time, not my time, the proper time is always God's time. And faith says, I trust you with the timing. We will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Patience brings the harvest. Hebrews chapter 10, this one's not on the screen. Jesus didn't just wait when he's born to when he started ministry. That was 30 years. He's been waiting for 2,000 years. Jesus has not received everything the Father promised him. When Christ has, Hebrews 10, 12, and 13, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies will be made his footstool. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting for every ounce of opposition to be completely and forever put down. He's waiting for his name to be vindicated in the entire earth. He's waiting for the promise of the Father that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is waiting for the global recognition of his glory that will never be contested again. If my Savior is in a waiting mode and I want to be close to him, I'm not going to wait on him primarily. I'm going to wait with him. So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, one simple prayer. Teach us to wait and help us keep our song while we do it. In your name, Jesus, amen.